Flexport is a technology company that makes logistics, supply chain management, and freight forwarding software. Shipping freight across the world requires container ships, airplanes, trains, warehouses, and trucks. Flexport's software integrates with many of these different shipping companies and provides a dashboard for the end user to understand how their products are being shipped around the world. Amos Elliston is the CTO of Flexport, and he joins the show to discuss building software for the global supply chain. Before we get to this episode, a few quick announcements. If you're interested in advertising on Software Engineering Daily, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. There are more than 14,000 engineers that listen to Software Engineering Daily on a regular basis, so it's a great place to get your product out into the ears of developers or to advertise available jobs that you might have at your company. Also, if you're an engineer that's looking for an open source project to work on, check out Software Daily at softwaredaily.com. This is an open source news and information site about software. It's being led by Jeff Tribble, a member of the Software Engineering Daily community. You can also check out softwareengineeringdaily.com, which is the website for this podcast. You can find links to the Slack channel, my Twitter account, my email. You can find a link to sign up for our newsletter, Software Weekly. And with that, let's get to today's episode. Amos Elliston is the CTO of Flexport, a freight forwarding company. Amos, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Glad to be here. What does Flexport do? So Flexport, we are an international freight forwarder and customs broker. So what that means is we move goods usually over 150 kilograms in weight from one country to another. And the reason the 150 kilograms number is interesting because it's the size of freight that's actually physically too big to fit into the UPS and FedEx networks. It won't fit on the conveyor belts and trucks and such. So this is big pallets worth of stuff. So if you are um, a shipper and you have a bunch of stuff that you make in China and you want to get it to the United States so it can get to a, a warehouse, usually a fulfillment center in the U.S., you need someone like us. And so we uh, coordinate all the logistics from picking it up at the factory in China, getting it on a boat or plane, Cross the ocean, and then we clear it through customs. Then finally, drop it off in a warehouse in the in the U.S. And so we're really a lot like travel agents for freight. We don't own any of the ships, the boats, the planes. Okay, we just do the logistics. What are the kinds of software that you have to write to accomplish this? So the software we write, it's uh, a lot of it is sort of it's it's workflow management tools. So. Allowing our team, so we have a bunch of logistics experts here, the ones uh, coordinating all the movements of freight, and allowing them to do their jobs better. So making sure that we can schedule pickups, deliveries, and publish that information to the clients so the clients know at any given time where their shipments are. And then taking the aggregate of all those shipments and delivering data back to the clients so the clients can figure out how much it costs over time periods, giving them really deep insights to help them run their supply chains better. As I understand, this is an industry where there's a lot of work that's being done manually and even much more work than that was being done manually prior to Flexport. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, so it's a huge industry. It's about like a $1.2 trillion industry. 
And so there are many, many people that do this. Uh, there's about 10 or more freight forwarders in the world that are worth, you know, five to $30 billion plus. And, um, some of them actually just do pencil and paper still, uh, which is, it's really hard to believe. And so, you know, they'll get shipments in and then write it down on a piece of paper. And then the client calls and says, Hey, where's the shipment? They'll refer to this piece of paper, look in their email to see if, um, one of their trucking providers had told them where the shipment is at any given point in time, but really don't have a dashboard for the clients to log into. Don't use the internet at all, except for email. Mm. And so that's, that's kind of the state of the industry. Some of the bigger players are, are a lot more sophisticated with technology, but they still haven't automated like 90% of it yet. Mm. So as I understand, there's a lot of different things that Flexport does. You've got logistics, freight forwarding, supply chain optimization, and these things seem like some very wide and disparate domains. Is there a different software stack for each of these areas within Flexport? No, it's very, very interesting question and very good question. So we have to do a lot of stuff. And truth be told, we haven't gotten all of it quite into our system yet. And so there are pieces that we're still rolling out that you know, probably last year, I would say at this point, most of it is in our system, but like, you know, we started a lot with things in Excel spreadsheets and we figured, okay, well, we're running shipments off this Excel spreadsheet. How can we put this in a, in a nice web app? So you, you can run the process a lot more with a lot more sophistication. And so we've slowly rolled up all our services, but there's, we keep adding stuff we're doing. And so it, it, it's quite a lot. Um, you know, we offer ocean, air, trucking, insurance. And so we have to make software for each one of those services. So is a typical situation, you hire a bunch of logistics managers, you have them roll their own workflow in a spreadsheet, and then over time you understand what they're doing in the spreadsheet and turn it into software? Yeah, that's probably what we've done for the last two years. And most <laughs> of it is in our system. That seems like a pretty good product development strategy, actually. It, I think it's great. I mean, the cool thing about what we do is our logistics managers sit right next to all the engineers and all the product managers, and they get to tell us day in, day out, like, hey, this is what we're doing. This is how you can make our life better. And so it's this really nice, tight feedback loop for software development. You know, previously I'd done a lot of consumer stuff, and you release stuff online, and you have forums, and you have different ways. You have to do a lot of A-B testing, figure out what people are using, which is nice. You get to use data, but it's not as this really high-touch, uh, visceral feedback that you get when they're in the same room as you. Right. So I have been in this scenario, too, when I worked at options trading place, and the traders worked on one side of the room, and the developers worked on the other side of the room building software for the traders. And occasionally, you, know, you hear a trader yelling about something, and you can just walk over and ask them, you know, how can I solve your problem? <laughs> so, um, okay. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> we try to minimize it as much, but we keep the love going. So the more, the faster we release software, it's actually very motivating for engineers. The happier the ops people are, and so we have a good relationship between the two two groups. So does Flexport make software only for its internal logistics managers, or are there you know can you be a logistics manager at another company and Flexport is useful to you? We make software. Internally, so we have an internal system that we have for our internal logistics managers. Um, 
we have partners, uh, you know, trucking providers, usually asset owners, the one that owns the, the own the trucks and the and the boats and the planes, that um, have some access to our system. And more and more, we'll open up more API access for those guys. But mainly, what we do, at least as as far as the sort of uh, nuts and bolts of the operation, is internal. Hmm. So, just to continue giving an overview for what this software is actually doing. What is the type of work that a logistics manager does? What are the types of software that a logistics manager needs? So a typical flow would be um, one of their clients says, hey, I have the shipment. It's going to be ready on this date. I need to get it to this location on this date. And so they start the process. They'll start with a quote usually and tell the client, okay, well, it's going to cost this much. Or this much, depending on the you know the time or the carrier you want to use, and, and advise them about better options. And so then the quote becomes a shipment in our system, and then the whole process is managed by the logistics manager. So you have to make sure it gets picked up at the factory, then it clears through uh, foreign customs, then gets on the carrier, and you know for oceans about two and a half weeks, for air it's overnight. Uh, and so then when it gets to the destination port, you have to make sure it gets through customs. If there are any delays, if customs stops it, you have to put that into the system, which automatically tells the client that it happened. Um, so all along, there's a lot of data going on. And we also do things like data entry of uh, commercial invoices to make sure that we know exactly what is in the shipment and the client knows. So we actually go down to the SKU level so they can say, hey, you know, I have this widget coming to to this Atlanta warehouse. Uh, you know how how many uh, how many boxes of it are coming, and so they can look in our system and, and do like deep search queries like that. Um, so it's a mixture of that and sort of making sure the whole process is run smoothly and the system on our side is updated. Mm-hmm. So my sense is that so like for example, a, a client of of Flexport is the Ring Video Doorbell. There's a video of of a client testimonial on the Flexport website. Uh, and so basically, I guess the workflow for the the person working at uh, Ring, the Ring doorbell company who is responsible for shipments, it has a, a contact at Flexport. And the contact at Flexport will make sure that the work, uh, necessary work gets done for the shipments of that particular piece of merchandise uh take place. So, you know, my talking more broadly, my sense is that distribution has gotten a lot easier for small and medium-sized companies that have stuff that they want to send around. What are the factors that have made distribution an easier process? I guess both from the the standpoint of a company like Flexport and from the standpoint of the the people who are actually making merchandise, for example, like the Ring Video Doorbell. Yeah, I mean, well, with Alibaba, it's easier than ever to find a factory in China to make your product. Uh, and there's lots of choices out there. So, you know, stuff is being made at cheaper rates than ever. And then, you know, where we, we get involved, it, it's easier than ever to, like, move it here to the because U.S. Usually they're selling to the U.S. when they start. Um, and so like, obviously the internet enabled them to, uh, find cheap, uh, distributors online and, and be able to like move freight 
much much easier than it was in the past because you know in the past the the information wasn't there so they would have to make phone calls try to figure out how to how to do this ryan our ceo started import x export 15 years ago and like you know for them to get they, they used to ship things like atvs and walk-in bathtubs uh and for them to get their stuff here to the u.s was just really really difficult and the inspiration for him starting this company hmm. so you also have internal customs brokers what kind of work does a customs broker do? And what kind of software do you need to write for them? So that's actually where we had the most success. Automating customs has been the easiest because it's it it, it lends itself well to a template. So they, their job over and over again is getting the commercial invoice and packing list and trying to figure out uh, which tariffs they need to apply uh, and making sure that the, the clients pay those. And so charging... Paying, paying the customs board for those things. Um, and it, it's very much more of a rote operation because like customs clears typically all the same compared with picking up the shipments and delivering the shipments. You know, we always have to pick up from new addresses and sometimes shipments are of varying sizes and they're from different places. Clearing through customs is sort of like this repeatable process. And so we've made a lot of headway on creating interfaces so they can clear it very quickly and efficiently. Um, and I would say like, you know, that's, that's definitely been our biggest success. Okay. So we did a show recently with a guest from a company called Zanetta and Zanetta makes software to find the best prices for freight forwarding and freight forwarding is core to Flexport's business. Why is there so much variability in the cost of shipping? Good, good question. Um, Zanetta is that uh, those guys know for sure because uh, you know what they do. Uh, they they take uh, they allow people to upload their freight rates, and so then they give them data back, so they get better at negotiating with carriers about freight rates. But you know, it's an interesting industry. A lot of it, especially on the ocean, there's not many carriers, and. Um, it's not a true, I don't know, say this controversial, it's not a true open market. And mm-hmm. so there's some obfuscation of like how they do pricing. It information seems to come asymmetry. Down. Yes, exactly. Information asymmetry. And it comes down to like the, a particular person in a particular carrier, a particular desk on a particular day, be like, oh, I think this is what I'm going to give you guys for a rate. And uh, there's no open market at all. So these you are know, like bond like traders, of, bond traders at Goldman Sachs that are setting prices. It, it, yeah, it's a lot like that, and the, and and the contracts they do are kind of they're very Byzantine and kind of obscure, and so they <laughs> can just kind of pull. I don't say they're like being um, what do you say nefarious at all, but they're it's it's a weird industry. It's not how you think of like what a marketplace should be. Mm. So what are the factors that go into the cost of shipping that they're charging? I mean, oil. Let's see, what does it cost for them to run a shipment? You know, they need labor, oil, and then they build these really expensive ships that they have to pay back. Mm-hmm. So not, I'm not really like a shipping expert, but okay. I think those are pretty much the main costs. Okay. So is predicting pricing part of Flexport stack? Or is it more just like getting the prices that these different shipping companies offer and broadcasting that to the end user? 
We are very much trying to get better data so we can start predicting. We think that's one of, going to be one of our key competitive advantages in the future. The more internal data we can build up, and this is why we treat data with such care, uh, the more likely our predictions are to be correct. Um, but if you look at some of our graphs about where the prices have gone, it just looks like a random walk. There's no rhyme or reason to it. it. They're all over the place. And that has a lot to do with the carrier's prices they're giving us. But we think the more market share we get and the more sophisticated we get, we should be able to do much, much better prediction. Mm. So just to just to give an idea, like if you have a customer that's using Flexport and that customer has like 200 kilograms of freight to ship, the customer might get three or four different bids from different freight carriers. Like you might have a bid for, oh, it takes two days to ship these 200 kilograms uh, for $6 per kilogram, or you can get it done for four days at a slightly cheaper price, $5 per kilogram. Um, so there's so there's really a market for these different shipping prices. Um, I mean, what does the software stack look like for for assembling those sets of bids is it is it difficult to integrate with these shipping companies it's not that difficult to integrate so we um we get we have contracts with uh ocean carriers and we put those contracts into our systems um some of our bigger clients have their own contracts and we'll, we'll put those into our system as well and so you know it's not unlike how kayak or orbits works like you, you can get um service lanes so you can get um shipments leaving for certain ports and then prices on certain days and um recognize prices for certain time periods and then just spit those back out to the customers when you match against their queries so, when so you, it's it's pretty straightforward when you say contracts is that like things that are updated daily or are they more like quarterly contracts? What does that mean? Oh, I don't know the update cycle of our okay. contracts. I can find out. I think ah. it's like a couple weeks or ah. something like that. Okay. Uh, the, you kind of don't, at this point, you don't want them too long because freight prices are rapidly, have been rapidly declining for the last six to eight months. We're at historic lows right now. And so locking in rates, uh, at least for the last several months, has been a bad idea because it just keeps going down and down and down. Um, it, it's finally coming back up now. Um, but you know, it's basically at historic lows such that some of these carriers are going to go out of business if it doesn't come up soon. Wow. Any idea what's driving that? Uh, oversupply. So a lot of these guys in 2011, when, um, trade was really starting to ramp up again, started building all these ships and it takes a long time to build these ships. And so the, a lot of them came online last year and now there's just massive oversupply to the point where some of these carriers are now just parking their ships in Singapore so they can artificially dep uh, depress the supply so the prices will come up, uh, which actually I think has been working. Bizarre. Uh, yeah, it is bizarre, isn't it? Is it is Amazon getting into this business? I thought I heard Amazon was getting into the, like, buying their own container ship business. Yeah, they are. They registered. We published an article uh, a few months ago how they registered as an NVOCC, a, a non-operating um basically a freight forwarder so they can um, move stuff just like us we think though it's really for fulfilled by amazon clients it makes sense for them because you know 
right now, if you're an Amazon client, you basically have to get the stuff to Amazon warehouse. And so we have a lot of these clients on our platform and it's kind of a pain for them. Like it would be better if they could get the stuff straight from China, uh, into the Amazon network. Mm. Uh, it would save them a lot of time and hassle. The, the problem they have though, as, competing with us directly is when we move shipments for our clients, we get their commercial invoice uh, for customs purposes. And, you know, the commercial invoice is how much they paid to get the stuff manufactured in China. And it tells the name of the manufacturer. That's pretty valuable data and pretty um, proprietary data for most of these clients. And so Amazon, I don't, I think they're going to be a trust factor there where they'll be reluctant to give Amazon that data. Uh, for fear that they'd basically just go to the factory themselves and under underbid. Interesting. the The taxes and the tariffs on items that you ship internationally; these things are constantly changing for any given item. How do you keep that information up to date? Um, we have a database of tariff codes uh, for different. Uh, kinds of items that we we store um, and then our customs team this is like one of the main jobs they do is constantly looking up to make sure which tariff codes apply to which uh, items and if there's updated information as well mm. okay it sounds like that's not is that not a not a very difficult technical challenge it's it's actually no. It is a difficult technical challenge. It is. It's pretty hard to get fully automated, which is why we still have humans doing it. Um, we hope to solve it <laughs> somehow. I, I'm, I'm sure there's a machine learning algorithm out there, but probably you need the data sources updated correctly all the time, and that requires really good systems th- that the government has, which isn't always the case. Yeah, the the reason I ask is I, I worked briefly at Amazon and I worked on some stuff involving taxes and tariffs and it was a nightmare. <laughs> it's really it's, hard, it's actually. Really, it's really hard, and we 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 have long discussions about how to solve it. We just we haven't done it yet. Right. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, it's a challenge. It's it's probably a good challenge for uh, new engineers to come in here and want to do something difficult. Yeah. Um. So. Do you have to purchase insurance on this cargo? Is there an automated way to to do that? Yeah, we we uh, our clients uh, purchase insurance, and we have an insurance provider through us, and so um, it's mostly automated. It's not a very difficult process. So, if I am a customer using Flexport, I can plot fulfillment centers and warehouses and factories on a global map and you can see shipments that move across that map interactively. How is the information about a shipment being conveyed to the end user as that shipment is moving around the world? Well, I'd like to say that's all GPS tracked, but um, it's not quite. We're doing, we have a um, Flexport.com slash now, which shows all of our shipments at any given time in the world, which is very cool. Check out an interactive 3D map. And um, basically, we, we just we estimate a lot of it. Uh, it it's pretty easy because these um, the shipments sail pretty um, – it, it's always the same. It takes the same amount of time to go from Ningbo to Long Beach. And so we know at any given time where the shipment is roughly. And same for air. Ah, uh, okay. So it's like the – uh, the 
the Domino's pizza timer where you order a pizza and you look at the thing online and it tells you the progress of the pizza. It's probably not the pizza is not actually being tracked. It's just yeah, an estimation. The pizza does not have a uh, GPS device in it or a completion <laughs> sensor. Such a letdown. Um, I know. I did obliged, <laughs> and I, I don't know. I say like, yeah, we put uh, GPS beacons in every try. We actually are are, are going to do that um, and and offer that to our clients eventually is, is putting tracking beacons. So something one of our clients did was they have these beacons on a pallet. And so they'll have like a mother beacon sensor on one pallet and all the boxes talk to that one. So it's a local sort of network. And if any of the boxes are removed from the pallet, the mother beacon sensor will then contact headquarters and be like, Hey, something's going on. This box is being removed from the pallet, you know, alert, alert, alert. Mm. Um, and so that's some of the most sophisticated tracking we've seen on the market. Uh, but it's it's surprisingly, you know, like RFID, iBeacons, the technology is there. It's just hard to implement because you got to get people in China fixing these things to boxes. Yeah, I imagined that. So if if the tracking is not really in practice, is is that to say that it's not really needed? Like it's, it's you know, how, what percentage of fright gets lost unexpectedly or when and when there's an accident like that what do you do um well there's definitely like you know this is one of our big concerns and we have lots of security mechanisms in place and so you know there's cameras at all these warehouses and if if some you know the biggest danger is like a trucker like stuff falling off of the back of the truck and so it's pretty obvious when that happens because you'll see them loading up a certain number of pallets and then unloading it at another uh, factory or another warehouse and you have security footage for all this stuff. So it's pretty easy to track down. And, you know, uh, that stuff is really regulated tightly. Like we make sure we pick the right vendors, the right trucking providers that that will never happen. Wow. Okay. Very cool. So we want to pack as much stuff into a given container ship as possible. Is that a problem? Is that a difficult challenge and like getting the optimal density of packages in a container um for ocean not as much where this really interesting is an air because you air is all about weight and so you pack containers based on like if you have a bunch of very valuable heavy stuff you want to pack it with some light uh, less valuable stuff. So stuff that takes up a lot of space that, but doesn't have a lot of weight. And, um, so for optimal efficiency. And so there's a lot of algorithms there for how do you properly package an air container volumetric wise. And, um, you know, that's where we are, we're creating software to help our clients with that and the carriers. Can you talk some more about that software? It sounds like knapsack. Yeah, it's a knapsack problem. Uh, have, we haven't fully done it yet, but like it exists out there. You're basically, you're saying like how much does a particular package weigh and then how much volume does it take up? And then can you find a particular package that weighs under this amount and will take up X amount of volume and put those together and you'll probably, you'll make more money off the entire shipment. Okay. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about integrating with these different companies. You mentioned that, for example, getting these contracts for shipping prices is not a difficult integration. Can you talk about other integrations, maybe 
particularly difficult ones. I mean, you've got all these different companies like air air freight and shipping and warehousing. What aspects of this are difficult? So this is where we've had the biggest challenge is getting port data. And so the port data is really cool because it'll tell us for all of our containers when it arrives in the port, uh, when it is ready to be picked up uh, by a trucker. And we don't have to call them. Like typically, sometimes when you're looking for a certain container, you have to call the port. Like, so we have like to make phone calls, which is a bit ridiculous because they actually have the system that is pretty good. Um, all these port, port owners have pretty good uh, internal systems figuring out where containers are at any given time. And so we've contacted them about getting API access and they even have APIs, but they've been reluctant to give it to us because they say that the data is owned by the carriers, by the shipping lines. And so for us to get it, we actually have to get all of the carriers to sign off and say, okay, well, Flexport can get this data because they are a provider that we enjoy working with. Um, There is another company that we've started to integrate with that somehow has this data. I think they're called Emodal. Um, And so we've gotten a lot of We've done a trial run with them, and like so far, the results look pretty good. So we do have this data, but it's taken. It took us about like seven months to do that. Hmm. You know, in a lot of old domains like banking, there are these old protocols like Swift. Are there any protocols like this in supply chain? There's EDI, which is not really a protocol. More, it's a funny. Do you know what EDI is? I don't know. It's the old school version of an API of a web uh, web service API, and so what? As far as I know, like a lot of people Im- implement it differently. There are actually like uh, protocol special specifications for it, but it's you have a provider and you say, okay, we're going to do an EDI exchange, and then you and the provider negotiate when a file is going to be ready on some FTP server either owned by you or the person you're doing the exchange with. And then you pick that file up and parse it, and it's typically an XML file, and that's the whole API exchange. Uh, and it's still dominant in the logistics industry. And so, like, you know, Oracle has EDI, SAP has EDI. All of these guys do a lot of their um, API um, in- interchanges through EDI. Uh, we, we try as much as possible to get people off of it. And we're like, hey, we have an API. It's a web service API. It's JSON. Here you go. And like, here's the specification. And you don't have to like have a contract about when the FTV server is going to be open. Right. Um, you know, it, uh, are there any challenges with warehousing? Like, Because there, there, there are a number of warehousing providers that Flexport integrates with. How do you... How do you figure out how much space is available at a given warehouse? How do you receive requests from a warehouse? Uh, is that is that any more difficult than any of these other integrations? Warehousing, so fulfillment centers have been tough. Like there are a lot of fulfillment center providers out there, and we have done API integrations with about six of them very few successfully uh it's it's interesting they all have these warehouse management systems but it's it's been challenging some of them do work and so we have the ones that work on our platform and so our clients can pick 
okay, well, I'm going to this fulfillment center. And so, you know, w- when my shipment is ready, you guys will automatically notify them. But it's, it's been a challenge. I mean, a lot of those warehouses uh, are, you know, mom and pop run. They're not very sophisticated about software. The software exists. It's usually on like a Windows server that may or may not be connected to the Internet. And so that's that's really, I think, where the whole industry needs to sort of up its game. So when it, quote, doesn't work, does that mean that the logistics manager has to make some extra phone calls? It's usually, yeah, an email. It just requires one or two extra emails. Okay. Interesting. So I kind of like to talk a little bit more about your work as CTO at Flexport. So I see a very big business with a lot of diverse problems. How do you determine what to focus on at any given time? Um, what's cool is, you know, it, it took us a while to figure out. You know, one of the biggest challenges we had in the beginning was, and and we had experts on staff, but like trying to figure out where we needed to build software is like, what is the set of services that we need to provide as a, as a freight forwarder? And then once we figured those out, we were like, okay, this is where we need to build software. But it honestly took us about, you know, one and a half to two years to get there because we're like, you know, there's a lot of things we could do. We could get into fulfillment. We could get into warehousing. But we're like, we need to draw a line in the sand and be like, this is what we're going to do. And so now we have a pretty good set of services, which is a set of services with most uh, freight forwarders offer, all, all the big guys uh, offer this. And uh, we are now just trying to build out each of those services into our platform. We almost see them, uh, our, our head of product recently described this in a really elegant way. We see these as microservices. And so these things are like, it could be Ocean FCL or Ocean LCL, which is like full containers versus not full containers, um, air, trucking, and split those out into really like vertical products within our overall product. And so... Now we are basically trying to build that out. I, you know, it's going to take a little more time, but we have a pretty good roadmap for the next, uh, probably the next several years. Mm. Can you talk about a little more what microservices means in the context of Flexport? So it's really about when someone wants to uh, run a shipment, wants to do a shipment with us, uh, we typically know up front how they're going to move this thing uh, from wherever it is in another country to here. And so often, like I said before, it, it will be on a boat or it'll be in a plane. If it's, you know, small electronics, like Apple moves most of their stuff via plane, um, really expensive items, it makes more sense to move it via plane. And so we will take one of those things and price it out and then give those, give the client a quote back with like a set of services. So a typical quote will combine a few things. It'll combine um, customs, insurance, trucking, potentially foreign and domestic, and then the the big move across the ocean, which is either ocean or air. And so each one of those things can be considered a separate microservice. And how does it look today in its monolithic form? So... In its monolithic form, we roll all of that stuff into internally what we're calling a marketplace. And so a logistics manager, he gets a client request for a, for a shipment, can choose among the microservices what is applicable for that, for, that, um, for that move. And then 
build out a aggregated quote to deliver back to the client for approval. Okay. So as you, I mean, you, obviously this is not in place yet, but as you're thinking about how to build up a culture around microservices, what does that strategy look like? How do you plan to enable different teams to build new microservices? So most likely what we're going to do, and you know, we're, we're still pretty young and to do all this stuff well is going to require a, a lot more engineers, but we are going to probably split engineering teams to align with those microservices. And so, you know, doing much more of the sort of cross-functional team so that you have like broad-based initiatives, like three to six months of being like, hey, let's build out a world-class um, trucking service or drayage, which is part of trucking. And then getting a group, a set of um, engineers aligned and then just building out the smaller features you need to, to achieve that. And then overall, you sort of have a three to six month objective. So correct me if I'm wrong. It, it feels like the, the, cha- the main challenges of the business are, for you today at least, are not necessarily software scalability challenges. It's more like gluing together all these complex moving parts and making sure these little integration points are working smoothly. Is that accurate? Yeah. And which is cool. I would say I, throughout my career, I've had to deal with scale, uh, in terms of, uh, lots of concurrency of users. And we don't actually have to do that. We monetize such a high percentage of our traffic that we can run on a very small set of servers. But our challenges are exactly what you said, is like this complexity. So it's no less hard than like, all right, let's make a site that can handle billions of users. Uh, because it's a, it's a different challenge. Like how do you get like this? It's a big surface area of the product. How do you get it all in usable interfaces so it runs quickly, uh, all these things weave together, you know, we still have to write mountains of code to do this. Um, and so it's a much different challenge than the scaling challenges I've, I've faced typically in the past. Is there a different story around on-call rotation? Cause these high, I, I think of on-call as difficult proportionate to the scalability of the company, but maybe you can tell me whether that's accurate. So I've done on-call most of my career. On-call is brutal. Uh, getting woken up at 2 a.m. on a Saturday or Friday is, is pretty rough. Um, we don't have that as much as, um, you know, sometimes our operations people, like we're 24-7, like moving shipments is 24-7. They'll, they'll need a fix to get something through the system. And so we have more of like an on-call bugs but nothing like, oh, my, the site is down. Like, I don't think our site is ever broken on the weekend. Um, and so it's a different kind of on-call situation. Mm. What about engineering management? Has, has engineering management changed as the company has grown and scaled to international offices? Well, all of the engineering is in San Francisco. So ah, and okay. I, I'm probably going to keep it that way for, for a long time. I really believe that you get much better innovation when everyone's in the same office, um, going back and forth, you know, even working remote sometimes is is difficult to really get good products out the door. So we're just building up here and I think we'll do that for the next couple of years. Um, 
there is a possibility that we have some teams in foreign offices where we have operations um, and those they might build local tools for origin teams in, in China or Vietnam, but we haven't uh, made any concrete plans. So with the somewhat lower throughput system than you might have with a company that has really big scalability issues, uh, you know, I know you said you take data quite seriously. Is there just a lack of data that you have to learn from and how can you scale up the volume of data that is giving you insight into the, um, the industry as a whole? So we definitely pull from several for, for doing, um, analysis, we'll pull from X data, external data sources. And we have a lot and we publish a bunch of those on, I think flexport.com forward slash data, I believe we publish all the HS codes and provide interesting facts about who is import, who are the top importers and exporters of each one of those um, codes. So we do a lot of that, but you know we have quite a bit of data already from all the shipments we've run, and you can get a lot of good insights off of it already. And so you know we have a we have a big data science team, um, like any other consumer company trying to figure out like what we need to do next and how the products we're building are working. What's the workflow between data scientists and product developers? They work pretty closely together. And so we do use, I'm doing a plug here at Periscope data, which is a great (laughs) tool um, to, uh, you know, we query a slave database and everyone has access to it. And so a lot of our PMs are technical enough that they're doing SQL queries themselves but for anything very sophisticated, they'll just they'll get a data scientist involved and collaborate together to try to figure out what grass they need to figure out what's going on. Ah, okay. When a high traffic event like Christmas or Black Friday happens, how does that change global shipping, and how do you see that at Flexport? Yeah, so we are very seasonal, uh, and right now we are getting into the peak season. Peak season usually, I think, is about July. I don't think it starts in July to December, basically. And so it really peaks out ocean, August, September, October, and then air gets pretty heavy November, December. And so it's it's intense. Then in January, we still have some shipments, but around Chinese New Year, everything dies. And it's really, it took us a while to like get comfortable with this because all of a sudden you're seeing like, no one's moving shipments because, you know, in China, the entire company shuts down. And so for a week, like nothing happens. You're like, oh no. Uh, but, you know, and then it'll pick back up. So it's a very, very seasonal, much like an e-commerce company. I don't understand. How does stuff get shipped if China shuts down? You, you ship it before or after. You, you figure out how to schedule it correctly. Wow. Yeah, like it's it's really for our first Chinese New Year. Like, what is going on? You know, we were really started to panic a little bit, and then sure enough, right after things picked up again, and then it happened the year the next year, and we're like, okay, well, let's not worry. Things will things will come back again. Hmm. So I read an article on the Flexport blog that was talking about the Tianjin explosion and its effect on supply chain. How resilient is the global supply chain to these types of disasters? Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty resilient. I, I don't know if that had lasting effect at all. I mean, it was a little blip. Um, there's so many different ways to move goods uh, through 
different countries, like you can always truck it to a different port that uh, it's pretty highly resilient. It, it takes a little longer. It gets a little more expensive, but you can get it there. Hmm. So just to close off, what is your biggest challenge today as CTO? Oh, uh, good question. I think for me, I think what is really challenging is to try to figure out how to build our product in a way that reduces complexity. And so really for us, it's limiting scope and really, you know, product management is so important for our company because it's the business roles are so complex for what we do that we, we have to make sure they're very disciplined about how they build stuff and, and take this really, really, really difficult uh, business problem, distill it down into a very simple, elegant interface. And so that, that's the stuff I worry about most. I was like, you know, I do not want complexity to overwhelm us. Mm. Um, and so I wake up every morning and think, like, how do we make this thing easier and faster? And how do we develop it uh, in a very simple way? Hmm. Can you actually talk a little more about the feedback loop between product managers and product developers and the logistics managers who are actually using the software? Yeah. So a lot of times when we build something, and so I gave a marketplace example, our microservices platform, the product managers will spend, I mean, I'm not kidding, like months with the business owners. And so with the LMs, the people who are negotiating with the um, ocean carriers and the air carriers, trying to figure out like how, how does their system work when the contracts come in, what will those look like? And so for this marketplace, it, it was months of like lots and lots of meetings, submitting proposals to the business owners, them rejecting it and be like, this is not going to work because of X, Y, Z. There's like 50 different corner cases every single time. And so it's a very tight feedback loop. The product managers almost live in operations sometimes uh, when our, we hired our first uh, or our second product manager, we had him do operations for two months so he could get up to speed quickly. Um, two months does not seem quick, but uh, we, we almost was a necessity. And so those product managers then take all that information and make bare bones specs and then flesh those out with the designers. And the designers do a lot of sitting in on those meetings as well. Our designers are very um, user-focused, so they're doing a lot of user interviews with the logistics managers. And so they create some sort of reasonable spec and then go to the engineer and be like, what do you guys think of this? Is this doable? How much time? And then do more iteration to make something that we finally start building. Makes sense. All right, well, Amos, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, I think Flexport's a super interesting company, and I'm glad to have had you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash S-E daily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.